In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard and as always I'm joined with the legend in his own lunchtime. That is Eddie Jordan. Eddie, how are you? Oh, you have a habit of making me feel so good, David. Thank you for that. <laughs> How's things? Uh, it's really good. Yep, absolutely. Summer's coming. Formula One hotting up, uh, so to speak, certainly for the Stuarts and, and the Alonso thing. But I'm sure we'll get around to that in, later on in the program. We will indeed. So if you have a question for myself or EJ, you can email us at ffs at whisper.tv or on social media by following us on our new social channels at F1 for success. And we're even on TikTok, EJ. Have you, oh, have you got a TikTok? Wow. I saw my mother on TikTok the other day and I said, my God, that's really bringing us up into a new level here. <laughs> Right. Anyway, right. Before we get on and talk about last weekend's Grand Prix, on our last episode, you told us an incredible story. I think it was incredible anyway, about how Sir Nick Faldo helped none other than Michael Schumacher prepare for his first Formula One race. And I believe that Nick's been in touch with you. He has indeed. He lives in Montana in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, and I'm sure he skis every day. But he had time to send us this note. Hi there, so Nick here, and Eddie's asked me to tell my side of the uh, Jordan Schumacher day. Um, I was friends with John Fitzpatrick at that time. He was a uh, clerk of the course at Silverstone, and he gives me, and Fitzy calls me and says, hey, I've got a great deal. Jordan, I've just rented the circuit. They're doing some testing, and uh, bring your Porsche down, and you can go on a track. Nobody else is around. So uh, I did the, exactly that. Anyway, at the end of the day, we're all quiet. Everybody's gone, a couple of mechanics around. Chris Rear was actually driving on that day. He'd, he'd left as well. And so then Eddie says to me, do you want to have a go? And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. And he goes, when the fuck do you think you're getting in an F1 car? So they jammed me in this thing. I, feet wouldn't fit, so I had to take my shoes off. Oh, gosh, you lift the clutch. Off she goes at 4,000 revs. You're right into it. I just put my foot down. And it's, the only way I can describe it, it's not acceleration, it's like a catapult. You go from zero to just wallop, full in. Anyway, so um, pretty close to, well, we're over 25 years later when they bring out the, the Schumacher documentary. And I'm watching that, and Eddie's saying, as he described, you know, he came and did some testing. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I recognise that car and all those colours. And then they start piecing it together and then realise, well, the, uh, as Eddie's described, the young kid in the car was Michael Schumacher. What an amazing experience. What an amazing day. And uh, to be right there at the start of uh, Michael Schumacher's career. Fantastic. Cheers all. 
Well, that is pretty impressive. I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, you've you just started your Grand Prix team, EJ, and you're allowing a very talented golfer to get in your car. I don't quite know what you're thinking. I would understand if it was someone you thought you could get money out of. And another thing, you got to love a man that introduces himself as Sir Nick. Um, have you got any titles after your name or, or after, you know, or ahead of your name? I think we've between us, we've got a couple of uh, MBEs and OBEs. I think I keep that in the dark. You know, there was a time if if you got something like that in Ireland, I think you'd have a very good chance of having a hole in your head. But but things have mellowed between all our countries. Even we're quite civil to the Scots at the moment, uh, and that's kind of a chore in itself. But anyway, I'm always nice to you, DC. You're special. Well done on the rugby, by the way. Very impressive. I never thought I never thought I would hear you say such a thing. But we're still celebrating and we're still coming down. The hangover has not dissipated just yet, but it was great. There's always a, a big respect between the Scots and the Irish, so no problem there. I would never say this, but uh, you know, basically anyone who who beats the English normally is considered pretty good between the Scots and the and the Irish. But of course, I'm Tree International, living in Monaco for 26 years, so that's not not uh, that's a trip to someone else. Yeah. Anyway, DC, what have we got here today? Well, what if, I was going to ask you, you know, that was pretty good with Sir Nick. So um, any other celebs that you've been able to pull out of your black book? Well, actually, it's kind of appropriate in some ways because he, he got mentioned in that piece. And that's not you or me, but that was actually Chris Rea. And uh, it goes back a very long way, long before Formula One. Uh, 1985, a friend of mine, Dave Pennyfeather, Great name. put an album together for Chris when things were not looking so good for his career. And he was relaunched in Ireland and he became massive in Germany as a result. The album, which I would suggest to our listeners, please listen to Shamrock Diaries, 1985. It's a classic album. And, and um, you know, that's how Chris and I became friendly through there and, and it followed on very soon afterwards. Chris was rehearsing for a new album and a new tour, and uh, rather than paying the money for a studio, he did it at the Jordan factory at Silverstone. Wow. Uh, And that was perfect for me because every lunchtime I'd go down and sit on the stool and gig with the guys while Chris was going off thinking about how he would finish a song or make a song or whatever it is. So I played with these guys. That's amazing. Um, Then roll on a year or so later, Jordan was doing, I don't know if you remember, David, but there were two races in, in Japan one year one in Suzuka and one in Aida. And um, the second race happened to coincide with the time that Chris Rea was asked to be the main guest at the Late Late Show with Gay Byrne in Ireland. And um, during that show, it was kind of embarrassing for the people there because they had no idea what Chris was doing. But he took these three candles, green candles, out and put them on on the table in front of the presenter and um, lit them. And he asked him, uh, Chris, you know, you've got to tell us, what are you doing here? He said, I'm lighting the three candles on the altar of hope because tomorrow, I believe, Jordan can win its first ever podium. And truthfully, that's what happened. And um, uh, Rubens finished uh, third. Irvine, if you remember, uh, got penalized for dangerous driving. Anyway, the reality was those three can candles. He wrote a song about it and it went on one of his albums in, I think, about uh, 94, 95. 
But Chris Rea, you cannot imagine this person was so passionate about Ferrari. He used to arrive at the factory in his Lotus 7, raced a little bit, uh, and then he wrote this great opera called Il Passione. And I remember going to the, the red carpet, if you like, the premiere of that particular movie that he did. Uh, Luca de Montezemolo was there. Everybody from the Formula One fraternity was there. Chris Rea is a remarkable man. I love him with every ounce of my body. He is... Not particularly great at the moment. He's had one or two little issues like us all, I presume. Uh, and we want to wish him every success, every good wish from every one of us, I presume, on this particular program. Um, Chris, get well soon. We love you, brother. Yeah, here, here. That, uh, uh, that is a fantastic story to imagine that some of the great music was born out of racing inspiration in the Jordan factory. Well, look, let's just turn our attentions at this point to Formula One. And I've just got back from the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. I know you were watching it. Um, the fastest street circuit in the world. It certainly looks visually good on television. I think you'll agree. The thing I really liked about it is the drivers look knackered after the race, which a lot of modern Grand Prix racing, they all look quite fresh because they're managing tyres and they're managing the weight of fuel. And, you know, the lap times at the start of the Grand Prix are several seconds slower than qualifying. Therefore, the energy the drivers experience is a lot less. But every single one of them, uh, when I did the top three interviews, were sweating and looking like they'd been in a battle. And that, to me, is what Grand Prix racing should be. It, it's absolutely human being and machine being pushed to the limit. Great result again for Checo. I've got to say, I, I didn't mention to him at the time, but if he ever retires in Formula One and falls in hard times, he should apply to be a taxi driver in London because there's nobody better on the streets that guy is unbelievable, isn't he? We saw it in Baku. We've seen it in Monaco. Now we've seen it, of course, in, in Saudi. You know, I was very close to Checo because, obviously, with the connection when it was Force India, he was the driver there for a very long time. I remember Andy Stevenson telling me his ability to control a given race is quite fabulous. What he's able to do and think it through is probably better than most drivers. So what he may lack in ultimate speed, like what Max says, uh, or, or with Lewis or somebody of that ilk, um, he's able to make it up with sheer guile, planning. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. When you actually structure in your mind before you go to a race, how you envisage it unfolding. And he has all of those attributes. Uh, I admire him a lot. I think he's a lovely, lovely guy and a great, great privilege to have him in Formula One. There's probably no tougher teammate than to have Max Verstappen alongside you. You've got to say George Russell has has managed to find his way pretty well with Lewis Hamilton, a seven times world champion. But um, I would view uh, his performances. He's won five Grand Prix, unbelievable in Singapore last year, solid as you like uh, this the, the the weekend in Saudi. So I would say he's he's a number one minus rather than than a number two because quite clearly Max is is the number one plus. So, But uh, all credit to him for that. I just hope that this isn't going to be a boring season because Red Bull are in a class of their own. And the problem is that there's a lot of other teams, a lot of rumblings. I don't want to single out either Ferrari or, or, or in fact, Mercedes or whatever. But, you know, you can see that they have, no matter how many cars they build this year, they're going to struggle to beat this Red Bull because I think it's so good. And I think they now understand the way. Max probably would have gone on to win that race in my opinion, because I'm going to ask you your opinion on this in a minute. But I think that Max 
concocted something about a, uh, a drive shaft so as to make himself look good because I'm absolutely convinced he was told before he went out, if Checo is leading the race and he's been on pole position, you have not ability and you have not get permission to pass him. That's just my view because if I was running a team, that is exactly what I would have said before they went out. You don't have to be Einstein to work it out. Max, in my opinion, found a decent excuse, which was the drive shaft. Christian Horner comes out and tells us no matter what we did, we went back to the base, we went and looked at all of the, the, the data and we looked at everything. We couldn't find anything. Guys, come on. There's enough in this to realize that we don't want to be bullshitted. This was a situation where Max managed the position to hold his face while still taking second place. DC, okay. I need you off the fence. Tell me how it is. I think Max is so much heart on sleeve that he doesn't concoct anything. What you see is what you get. A little bit like when he was on the radio saying, what's the fastest lap? And they said, "We you know, don't think about that. And he's like, well, I am. He remembers very well, he went into the final race of the World Championship in 2021 equal points with Lewis Hamilton and they would equal to the half point because of half points being awarded early in the year. So that one point for fastest lap could make the difference later in the year because clearly these cars are very close to the edge. So I hear you, EJ, and I, I know you've got your finger on the pulse of uh, the team principals and uh, those that control Formula One. But I, I think Max, when he says it, he means it. If he doesn't say it, it's because he doesn't think it. Let's move on to- David. Don't run away from me like that. Um, put your racing suit to one side and put your team boss, team manager, you're sitting on the perch there and David Coulthard has to make a decision. You have to make the decision. What is that decision? Please tell me. Well, I would want them not to race for risk of damaging the cars because it's an easy one too and it's early in the season. And let's remind our listeners, team orders are allowed. The drivers are highly paid employees of the race team. So it's not unreasonable for the team to, to give instructions from time to time. But you've got a double world champion. You've got someone that without him, you would not have won those two world championships. I think that is a very big ask to, to go on the radio as they found out in Brazil last year and ask Max not to do something. You know, you're taking away the very DNA that makes him so great. Oh, David, I'm sorry. We, we kind of, you're, you're at Spa you were there, and you, you helped me to win that race by having an involvement with Michael Schumacher. So Ralph Schumacher was definitely quicker at that given moment than Damon Hill. And Damon Hill comes on and says, if you allow us to race, there's a very good chance we'll have each other off. So what do you do in those circumstances? I'd like to know what you would do. You did the right thing. You told them not to race. And you were lucky that you had a compliant you had the right Schumacher in your car, not in terms of <laughs> pace, <for> sure. <laughs> but you had the right Schumacher in your car in terms of going through the motions. If you had said that and it was Michael Schumacher, teammates Damon Hill, you would have either had a uh, selection of German expletives or you would have had silence and you would have just had to sit back and watch him carve a way through. And you know that in your heart. Some of these serial winners you cannot tame and that's what makes them brilliant. You know, I, I was... I always complied when I was asked to to move over for teammates. And that Scottish gentlemanly behaviour didn't get me a world championship. I was a little bit frustrated in Saudi with the penalties. Fernando, yes, was out of his box uh, at the start position. 
he owned that. He was very chilled about it. But there was no tangible benefit in being slightly to the left. These are big cars. They're like sports cars without the bodywork. He's made an error of judgment. Easier for the second row and third row, fourth row to line up with the car in front. But when you're the first car, you're looking for the yellow line that denotes where the front wheel should be. Quite difficult to really see that little box. But that's something the stewards wouldn't understand because none of them, apart from you know whoever the, the, the race representative is, has ever driven a Formula One car. So small error there, cost them five seconds. Then in the pit stop, they touch with the rear jack and you can argue that was gaining a sort of lifting advantage, but there's no way that speeds up the process because the wheel guns go on before the car goes up in the air. So there's no benefit in that person being there. He was just making sure that the, the jack was positioned correctly. We have a podium. We celebrate the top three. And then just as the podium's finishing, they give the 10, uh, the, whatever it was, five second or 10 second penalty. Ten to Alonso and then George Russell's stolen you know the, the chance to be on the podium the commercial opportunity something that would be near and dear to your heart all your partners and sponsors having the chance to be on a podium isn't given to them it, it, it seems to me that and I, I appreciate it's a difficult job being assured nobody likes the referee unless you're the winning team or you've just been given the penalty but it seems to me that the, there isn't a big enough understanding of the sport of the the need to not confuse our audience because a lot of people might have switched off after the podium and thought, brilliant, there we go, Fernando Alonso's got his 100th podium. And then next day they see on the news, oh, he was disqualified. Oh, he's been reinstated. It's totally confusing. Absolutely, 100% agree. I remember the great words that Bernie always used to say, do not confuse me or even try to tell me that there is a change. Whatever is on the podium, I want that to be what is on the podium. So whatever you need to do beforehand, do it. But the podium is the podium. The thing about the jacket is just a nonsense and it makes the stewards look positively stupid. And in terms of the media, it, what message are we giving out to people? The podium is the podium. Like I saw your interview, Fernando was over the moon, but you know, what a professional cool guy. When he got the 10 second penalty, he seemed to be able to grab it because he's seen everything. He's been through everything. He's been through the protests. He's been through when cars are illegal. He gets it. And um, this is why I said to you before the season started, let's not be surprised where we think Fernando can go. And I think at the weekend, yet again, what a consummate professional he is. I mean, to lead the race, to hang on to the inside of the track, to make Checo go the wrong side or the other side, you know, I think he's just a dynamite guy. But we have to be realistic. How far did he finish behind Max? And that was to do with a safety car as well. You know, we're in for a long, hard, hopefully not so boring season because I think Red Bull are so far ahead, it's ridiculous. Question to you, EJ, is Lewis, the long negotiation about whether he will stay, won't stay, he won't go somewhere else. It, so it seems that, you know, why would they wait on that negotiation? What is he waiting because he wants to see the uh, performance improvement of the car? Is he waiting because he prefers to sign contracts in his swim shorts in the summer? You know, what, what is it? You either you either want to be together or you don't want to be together. I don't know the answer to that. I remember being involved uh, trying to. Uh, Dickie and I, I mean, we concocted a, a bit of a scam about getting him out of the McLaren situation and into Mercedes. Um, the thing about Lewis, 
I'm confused. My view is at the moment he must be thinking hard about it. Angela's gone. That was a shock to me, I have to say. I thought they were sort of joined at the hip. She was so close to him in terms of being with him and by his side. Uh, Lewis is a little bit of a loner, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, that he does things on his own. He doesn't have an entourage around him generally, and he doesn't have big groups. Other people, he might bring some musos or some film stars with him, but generally he minds his own business and he gets onto it. He adores and loves his racing. And remember, he's been doing this since five or six years of age. So I don't know where he gathers up the total commitment every weekend to gather up the excitement to keep doing it time and time again so i would forgive him if he decided to stop i'd support him on that if he decides to go ahead i want to see that he has at least a chance to fight for races because that eighth world championship has to be in the back of his mind he he knows he's equaled what Michael Schumacher has. But let's be very clear about this. Uh, we look into the future. If everything stays well with Max, and I'm hoping that it will, both uh, mentally, physically, and everything with to do with the car, uh, Max is going to hit 10 world championships because he's that young and he's that good. And you know what he's like. How fast is he? He's just ridiculous how good he is. Um, so um, I think Lewis needs to get on his bike and hurry up and get number eight because it's soon soon to be passed up by Max in, the, in any case. Um, would I say, should he go? He has to see how this new development with the Mercedes and, and really how truthful or how honest that um, Toto can be or what he knows can be developed within the car because... It's going to be a huge ask to get that car uh, up to the level of Red Bull. And I say the same thing and include uh, all the other cars, including Aston Martin, but in particular with Ferrari. Um, they're all fighting for second place at the moment, and, and that's how I see it happening. At this point, I think we should move on to uh, a little section where we get some questions from the listeners. So I'm going to go straight in with a gentleman whose handle is at scrapper11111, and in brackets it says Ian. So anyway, Ian, uh, his question is, uh, Eddie, he remembers you describing the reason why DHL colours became yellow. You're claiming that one, aren't you? Uh, so he wants to know uh, a little bit more detail on, on how that came about. And what colour was DHL before they became yellow? Um, I, I had DHL, uh, or sorry, I had Deutsche Post, and Deutsche Post owned the Post Bank, and they had an involvement with, with, with Lufthansa, and that's why the yellow was on Lufthansa a little bit. So um, they came to me and they said, look, they were very happy with what we were doing, with Frenson in particular, and winning some races. And they said to me, look, we, we've just bought a new business. And we'd like you to help us to make it the number one business in the world with some of the on-track performance and stuff like that. And for those who remember or are as old as me, uh, DHL was always white, always white with a tiny bit of DHL in red. Anyway, we move on. And I went to, to Nigel Nortridge, who was the chief executive of Benson and Hedges. And I said, Nigel, this is what we're going to do. He said, but EJ, come on, uh, you know me now uh, and I know what you're like, but you can't do that. I said, come on. Don't be silly. Of course we can. And he said, no, 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 no. The contract is absolutely clear. The car must be yellow at all times. So you can't do it. And I knew by him that he was deadly serious. And even though he was Irish and I thought we could wangle a few little deals here and there, uh, but there was absolutely no way it, it was a rock. So what could I do? The only way out of this I could see is I'd go back to Professor Shukis and say to him, listen, Professor, you've asked me to do something and I'm not going to be able to do it for you. And he said, what? 
I said, because you've asked me to do something that's impossible, because you've asked me to give you DHL in white and red and compete against FedEx, which is white with red. And I said, you, you, like for like, you're not going to compete against that. I said, even if you look at UPS, that horrible brown color, everybody knows where that van is. They know it's a, a UPS van. And so I asked for permission to see the main board. And he said, don't be silly. We never do things like that. The board meeting is very serious, even the advisory board. And I said, no, I want to see the main board because I've got something that they need to understand and at least know that in front of them, I've produced this particular item. Um, so eventually they said yes. I got five minutes at the end of the board meeting and I went in there dressed in my team uniform with a yellow Deutsche Post uh, umbrella. And I gave each and every member of the board a package and I asked them not to look at it first. And so the first page was seven vans, all white in a street. And the next page was f three, four uh, aeroplanes, all white. And I said, now please stop. I said, you've asked me to try to help you to make DHL the major logistics brand in the entire world. And I'm saying to you, in the current situation, I cannot do that. And I'm refusing to take it on board as a sponsor because I physically can't deliver for you. But if you turn over page three, I know every marketing guy in the whole universe will tell you, you must never change the color of your brand. You must never change the logo setup or the typeset or whatever it is. And that's what they say. But in this case, I'm saying to you, please have a look at what it is. So the third page you turn over and there was five white vans and two yellow ones. And the next page was three aeroplanes and one yellow one. And of course, they're all looking at each other and I'm loving the fact that they are at least considering it. And I said, I'm going to leave now. And I've put the umbrella up as that. And I said, you have sooner or later to bite the bullet. You've got to pay the expense now. You've got to suffer the pain to get the gain down the road. And that is how DHL became yellow. And to this day, they pay me a tiny, tiny royalty just as friendship to maintain what actually happened on that given day. For sure, Jordan Crombie, not because they were clever, but because we were desperate, we needed the money, and I had to go for a flat out and balls to the wall, myself and Ian Phillips, he was partly to do it, he was encouraging me to do the things that I did, so I owe a lot to Ian as well, and um, from that point of view, uh, it, it, it was born out of Jordan, uh, but it was born out of desperation as well. It seems to me that you got as much pleasure out of marketing and doing deals as you did out of the racing. But I have been told uh, a story where you, in your prime, when you were really, you know, sponsors are throwing themselves at Jordan because they were different and they all wanted to be part of the journey. Apparently you were on stage at a conference where you, you, the supplier of your trucks had changed and, and or you, you just simply, instead of standing there and saying thank you to Volvo or whoever was your truck's sponsor, you said, look, without Scania, we couldn't be successful. And of course, you're looking at all these faces going, we are not that brand. Did that actually happen or is that just folklore? Well, to be honest, to this day, if you ask me which it was, because I think we did have Volvo and we did have Scania, and I had no idea. And for me, it was a matter of a truck getting from A to B, and I just wanted to be respectful to them, but I was a complete clown. Um, because obviously, in those days, my mind was about four sentences into the future. What I was actually saying was just complete nonsense. I was trying to remember what should come up next so as I don't forget people. But yeah, that's not the only one. I'm sure if you dig deep enough, I think there is... Bigger screw-ups than that along the way, which well, I'll admit to them all, don't you worry. Yeah, no, no, I won't hide behind anything. 
But if you're talking about sponsorship, I've got to say one of the classics, and this is reminded by a great driver, which I absolutely love, called Martin Donnelly. He said, EJ, in his typical Irish accent, he said, do you remember you sent me out for the Formula 3000 race in Silverstone? And then because you had the, the ambassador uh, for Kuwait on the outside of the track and on the inside, you had the people from Camel and you had on one, ca- one side of the side pod, you had Kuwait and on the other one Camel and both thought that they were the... <laughs> they were the main title sponsors. Honestly, that was such a frightening race for me because I was afraid of my life that they'd tweak what I was doing. Yeah. But, you know, you did those things in total desperation. Yeah. Well, it worked out for you, EJ. It's all coming out. You're getting this out of me, DC. It's not fair. Not fair. Well, that's good. That's that's why that's why we have the podcast. So uh, uh, hopefully our listeners will come in with some more prying questions or if they've heard any little rumours from your exploits in the past. They, they won't hear anything from my exploits in the past. You know, all, no, all... well, I'm quite sure. But you see, you're cleaner than cleaner. David, I'm going to get you off the fence sooner or later because that's why I can't understand why everybody still loves you as much as they do. You don't have any hate mail. I get lots of hate mail. Uh, there's a few exes might not uh, might not love me that much. But anyway, last week you said you, you were going to work on some... Uh, music for our podcast so how have you been getting on have you have you recorded anything uh, the short little time that i had i went in there's a chap here called darren peterson who happens to be a musical director of the orchestra but i also play in a he, he's a member of the robbers so he plays with me we went into a studio the robbers is just, your band don't don't assume you, you're not international yet Our, we've got an well, international sorry when, when bernie eccleston called you a fucking robber and you say thank you Bernie for giving me the name of a great band and well I decided to drop the F word so I just called it the robbers and most people not most people most people in motor racing have a good idea who the robbers are anyway Darren and I put together uh, went into a studio we had a little play got a guitarist in there I played the drums and the spoons and I do a certain little sound that you asked me to, to use at the end so let's hear what it's going to be if you're going to play it then let's have a listen Just in case you thought it was made up. The <laughs> <laughs> Captain Jack, yeah, I love the little growl at the end. Yeah, that's uh, it's got it's got a beat, it's got a swing. Somehow, I thought there was going to be like a animal from the Muppets type solo drum in there or something, because you know you are a bit kind of like animal when you're on the drums. DC, respect your edge, please. Respect <laughs> edge. Okay, very nice piece of music. Let's uh, we'll Let's see what people play. think about it. Yeah, it was we'll, done in we'll a relatively short period of time. I think I had a, an evening and a day. But you know something, which whatever happens, whether we use it or we don't use it, I so enjoyed putting it together and dubbing one thing over another. And then the growl, as you rather said to me, that you'd like to hear me. Uh, my Captain Jack sound, which is my Captain Jack sound. So let's see what it is. Let's move on. Yeah, our listeners can uh, can write in and let us know whether they approve of your musical uh, efforts. Uh, and well, it seems a good time for me to say that you can get in touch, uh, give us your views on Eddie's musical stylings or anything else you fancy by emailing ffs at whisper.tv or by following us at F1 for success. And uh, of course, don't forget to subscribe too. 
So EJ, thank you for your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. And uh, we'll be back next week with another Formula for Success.